0: The ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the OrthoPAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us. So up next for the Spring PAOS Conference Week, we've taken some highlights from the past six months and put together a collage of our most popular topics, the best of the ortho PAC. Take a listen. There may be something you haven't heard. We'll be back next week with Aberrant Season pain management with Dr. Marks. Thanks for listening and join us on our conference social media at hashtag PAOSspring21. Today's guest is Dr. Richard Rutherford. So when you first see a patient and you think there may be an infected total joint, what points in the history and physical exam make you think infection versus some other etiology?
1: I think an important point that was drilled into me early in my training was you should always have it in the back of your head as a reason why somebody could have could have a painful total joint. You know, it's really funny what patients will and won't tell you. Sometimes you have to ask them six different ways about whether or not there's a history of infection and and they might not volunteer the information. So, you you know, you ask, did they have any difficulties with wound healing after the surgery? Did anybody ever place them on extended antibiotics? Uh, was there ever any prolonged drainage, you know, and you, you just have to kind of get really be thorough in your history taking to try to pick up on that. And, and you ultimately, um, if you have a painful total joint that you think might need an operation, even if there's nothing in the history indicating infection, it's still prudent to at least check screening inflammatory markers such as ESR and CRP just to eliminate it as a possibility.
0: Today, I'd like to welcome attorneys Sarah Lincoln and Scott Addison. Here we go. I made a mistake. I screwed up. What do I do? Talk to my doctor, but I start thinking this is not going to go well. Where do I go? Do I talk to my risk management? Do I write things down? Do I ask other people what they would have done? What do I do? Where do I go?
2: So first things first, don't write anything down. (laughs) you've already written down what you needed to write down in the medical record is my hope. Another important note to remember now that we are in this digital age of medical records is every time you go into the medical record, you leave a digital footprint. So if you start going into the medical record because you're panicked about maybe something having been done wrong, Then what happens is in the discovery phase of the lawsuit that we talked about earlier, plaintiff's lawyers now ask for what's called the audit trail that shows every time you went into the medical record, what you looked at, how much time you spent in there, and they will use that against you to say, well, clearly you knew you did something wrong because look how many times you were in the record. Even if you didn't do anything wrong, even if you just are having that kind of moment of panic, I think I might have screwed something up, don't resist the temptation of going into the medical record repeatedly or at all um, until you talk to somebody. So first I would talk with your supervising physician and may supervising physician knows that you have a concern and they may be able to recommend to you who within your organization you need to talk to next. If you have in-house counsel, in-house counsel is a great place to go. Um, if you have risk management, Again, another great place to go. None of these is exclusive. You could talk to any of them or all of them. The ones that where your conversations are most protected so that they wouldn't, no one would be able to learn about them later would be with your risk management department and with your in-house counsel. So those would be kind of first tier, but you definitely also do want to let your supervising physician know. Uh, You know, I think for the most part, your supervising physicians have your back and you're going to want them on your side, and and remind them don't go into the medical record mm-hmm. until we talk to legal. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Today's podcast is on common fractures of the midfoot and forefoot. I'd like to welcome Dr. Nick Viennes to our podcast. You know, and at the end of the day, if
3: people remember nothing else, it's um, don't don't miss a Liz Frank injury and at least be thinking about it all the time when somebody comes in with foot problem because mm-hmm. you know, missing those can end up becoming a big disaster for the patient or even
0: for the provider. I've seen a few of those by no means as many as you have, but it seems like the the, the presentation that's exaggerated compared to what you would think from a normal foot sprain.
3: It often is. It often is, uh, particularly for the traumatic ones. But, you know, there's a the isolated ligamentous Liz Frank injury or the so-called sports Liz Frank injury mm-hmm. is often missed. And, you know, because people can walk on it, they don't have a giant foot. They don't necessarily have plantar ecchymosis. It's more of a subtle thing and and subtle instability, but often you can pick it up. If you, again, you know, to look for it, you palpate in the right area and weight bearing x-rays and and in our clinic um, routinely, we'll get uh, AP x-rays of the bilateral feet so that you've got the normal foot right there looking at you and the other foot, you know, at the same time on the same x-ray so you can compare side to side. And, And sometimes, you know, that second metatarsal medial edge of it will line up with the middle cuneiform and it looks fine. But then you look at the patient's other side and you realize, oh, man, you could drive a truck through this one side, and the other side is a lot more narrow. So it's not as simple as seeing a step-off. Um, sometimes it's just a generalized widening in the foot. Um, and and midfoot fractures, you know, those bones, there's a lot of little bones, and they all sort of overlap. So on a, on standard x-rays, you're often never getting a true perpendicular view of all of all these bones so you can miss breaks very easily mm-hmm. uh, even if they on an MRI or CT they're obvious I mean that happens all the time so that's another thing to ab- absolutely take home is get weight-bearing x-rays of the foot yeah it completely changes things
0: and and for all those listening that goes for all weight-bearing joints uh, yep. in our practice anyway uh, definitely get weight-bearing x-rays very important Alyssa Zantello is a PA who works in orthopedics in Michigan. Her story about the pandemic and her volunteerism is one I wanted to share with our listeners. Were you afraid? Did you have any fear with
4: working with these folks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think most of the fear was before I got there. Um, Knowing that I was going somewhere that was an epicenter and not knowing how bad it was, not knowing what to expect, not knowing a ton about COVID in general. I was definitely afraid that I might get it. And it was a legit concern that I could have a bad outcome just because I knew that was a possibility. There's something about um, getting in go mode though, and working with a group of people that are all um, on board with the same mission and same goal, where Um, You just do what you need to do. A lot of that fear dissipated as soon as I got to work. I'm thankful for that because it would not be very conducive to work in in a setting where you're acutely afraid every moment of every day. So I'm thankful that a lot of that fear went away
0: today's episode, we have Dr. Brian Saltzman. If we're talking about cellular-based therapy, how does it work? And uh, you, you've talked about, you know, different options in the U.S. What are a couple of options that we have for treatments here?
5: That gets into options for us, really in the U.S. being a, a discussion of the bone marrow aspirate concentrate or BMAC coming from the iliac crest or the, the proximal tibia or the distal femur, the proximal humerus around the shoulder, just based on Ease of of access. If you're operating, you know, if you're in the operating room and you're operating on the shoulder and want to use the proximal humerus, it's right there. But also an understanding that there are varying levels of true stem cells and hematopoietic factors in each of those locations, with the iliac crest being the gold standard still from uh, from the basic science data that's out there. So bone marrow aspirate concentrate versus the adipose derived injections, the fat injections from the flank or the buttock. And injections being, you know, within the joints, uh, around bone augmentation to scaffolds with cartilage repair, topical augmentation on focal defects of cartilage. So, different places certainly in in the joints and around the joints of the body. As far as well, how do these how do these work? And that goes back into the discussion from uh, from just a moment ago, saying, well, if this isn't just stem cell injections, what's actually happening in there? From the stem cell standpoint, that percentage that is kind of some of those mesenchymal stem cells, these have the multilineage differential potential to, to differentiate the multiple cell types like uh, bone cells, cartilage cells, fat cells, through induction of some of the growth factors and local proteins around wherever they're transplanted. But a lot of the actions probably come through some of the immunosuppressive or anti-inflammatory actions of what's being injected with them and some of the growth factors cytokines some of the bioactive uh, lipids that can can help blood vessel formation and and prevent cells from uh, from dying anti apoptotic properties of cells and and it seems that uh, that a lot of it may come from that because i, I don't think I don't get a sense that from the literature we have a great suggestion that injecting these into an arthritic knee is regrowing cartilage and changing the X-ray or MRI. And that's what I, that's what I tell my you know my patients um, from that standpoint is you know does it have a capacity to help cartilage cells come into those places? And and the answer to that from a basic science standpoint might be yes, but I don't think right now that we have uh, an appropriate ability to quote that taking an end-stage arthritic knee and injecting bone marrow aspirin is going is to turn that into a 20-year-old knee again. So it seems to be some of those other properties of these injections and and some of the paracrine effects as well, you know, the ability to simulate other parts of the body, distant parts of the body to send in cells that, that engage in cell differentiation or, or angiogenesis, blood vessel growth or some of those immunomodulatory or, or anti-inflammatory roles, things, things that can reduce fibrosis or scarring, which can be helpful in the soft tissue realm. Things that help to, to nourish cartilage inside of the knee joint, chondroitin sulfates and, and proteoglycans, which help make up some of those uh, synovia synovial side properties as well.
0: Don Morton rias is my guest today. She's the president and CEO of the NCCPA,
2: uh, and essentially the pilot enables PA's to uh, answer 25 core medical knowledge questions each quarter. Uh, The quarter opens. They can go into their uh, portal, answer those questions, and get immediate feedback so they know if, if they've answered the question correctly or not. And they also have access to resources as well as an explanation why that answer was the best choice of those choices that are available. We know in medicine, there's always a full range of choices of, of what we could do to manage and, and treat certain diseases and disorders, but of the choices that are there, this is the best one, and this is the reason why.
0: Welcome back. Part two of our interview with Dr. Casey, and we're going to discuss evaluation of a limping child. What do you do when the kid comes in? that's limping, and you can't get a great history. How do you start?
6: Well, I do get a good history, so I think the history is super important. And just for all the reasons that you talked about with the the slide or trauma or not, because I think a lot of times, actually, they come in limping and the parents blame it on an injury when it's not an injury. That's just a red herring. So I want to make sure you don't get fooled by this history of trauma. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in the parent's mind, they will think, oh, they fell and it was three hours before their nap, but they were running around between the fall and the nap and then woke up with pain. But they won't tell you that unless you really specifically ask. So after the fall, were are they walking? Oh, yeah, they're running around. If you don't ask that, you will not know. And so you'll be on the trauma pathway when you need to be on the infection, something else pathway. Mm-hmm. A good history is really, really important. And there are some other things that you can glean out of the history that you might not be able to get in the office. Trying to figure out what part of the extremity is hurting or which extremity is sometimes challenging. And so if the parent says they won't walk. Well, that's interesting because some people not walking means they, they walk with a limp, but they actually are walking. And to some people, it means they won't put their legs down. So be real specific with that. Also ask if they'll crawl. If the child will crawl, then you've pretty much ruled out hip and femur, because if the hip or the femur is the problem that won't let them walk, it also won't let them crawl. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's helpful to Ask the parent, well, will they crawl? That is kind of the beginning of my conversation is getting a good history. And then, of course, you jump into the physical exam.
0: My next guest is Andrew Zimmerman, PAC. Andrew works in orthopedics and specializes in spine work. So today you had brought up uh, spondylolisthesis as a topic. And so we wanted to talk some about that. And I've got to tell you, uh, when I first came into orthopedics, you'll like this story. uh, I went to a uh, conference. This was 20 plus years ago. And the fellow that was talking about it kept calling it spondolysis. He kept calling it spondolysis. (laughs) And I was like, what's a spondolysis? I don't know what that is. Well, he had a Stetson hat, a cowboy choker necklace, and spondolysis. So that was our guy. And I was like, I don't know what to think about that. But... That being said, uh, can you tell us the difference between spondylosis, spondylolysis, and spondylolisthesis? Extremities in the Carolinas, Trauma for General Orthopedics, PAOS's 2021 Spring Meeting, May 21st and 22nd. Please follow us on our social media, hashtag PAOSspring21 for conference updates.